me where, tell me where to go. Tell me where, tell me where to go. Tell me where, tell me where to go. Wake my flag. Hello and welcome to another edition of Tell Me Where to Go. I'm Steve Collins and for the next hour or so we are going to be talking travel and there's a lot been happening this week. For instance, on February the 5th next year, Western Australia is going to be opening up to the rest of Australia and the world. After two years, our hard border is finally coming down. Yes, from Saturday the 5th of February... Interstate and overseas travellers will finally be allowed to travel to WA with relative freedom, which will end our island within an island COVID mitigation approach. And West Australians will also be able to travel outside of the state and return. Of course, there are different rules for those who are vaxxed and those who are not vaxxed. But basically, if you are fully vaxxed, then you can travel with impunity. There are some rules and regulations, of course. For instance, strict testing requirements will remain in place for anyone travelling to WA. International arrivals who have been fully vaccinated will need proof of a negative COVID-19 test that's taken within 72 hours prior to departure and then they'll be needed to be tested again both within 48 hours of arrival and again on their sixth day in WA assuming they are staying in Western Australia that long. The requirements are similar for domestic travel minus the need to test six days after arriving. These PCR tests, in many instances, overseas visitors may have to pay for them. But if you're an Australian, then the Medicare covers the full cost of a PCR test if it is required for travel. So really, for local people and other Australians, the tests are as they are at the moment. You can go and get your test for free. Outside of WA, a test can be obtained for free with a referral from a doctor if they bulk bill or if it is from a COVID testing clinic. Now, there are a couple of exemptions to these rules. For instance, people making a brief trip, say, interstate to, say, to Melbourne to go and watch the footy. Assuming that you are vaccinated, you will not have to be tested in that state before heading back west. And people visiting Western Australia for fewer than six days will need to have tested negative before travelling, but not on arrival. Of course, the G2G pass will still be required to help authorities track who needs to be tested. Now, that's all for the vaccinated. If you're unvaccinated, well, there are vastly different rules for them. Domestically, no one who is unvaccinated will be allowed to enter WA unless they are ineligible for the jab or have a medical exemption. And internationally, the unvaccinated will be allowed in, but there will be strict arrival caps and they will have to quarantine for 14 days at a designated facility. The other thing is masks after February the 5th, this is. Masks will be required on public transport, in taxis and ride shares, at airports and on flights, and for visitors to hospitals or aged 
or disability care. They will not be needed in other settings such as major sporting events, nightclubs, pubs, etc. For the unvaccinated, they will be barred from going to nightclubs, major stadia, the casino or events with more than 1,000 patrons. If you're not vaccinated, life will not be as free for you as for those who are. So why has February 5th been chosen as the magic date? Well, it's very simple. The Premier, Mark McGowan, suggests that by then we will have reached 90% of people being double vaccinated, which lowers the chances of people overwhelming our health system. In other news, here's one, see? This is what happens when you open up. Qantas has announced a new direct Perth to Rome flight three times a week from June next year. It's not quite true that it is Perth to Rome. It's Perth to Rome direct. But the flight actually emanates in Sydney. But the good thing is the direct Perth London routes have been the most popular international flights and the most profitable for Qantas. So it's no surprise that they will want to recontinue those big flights. And Rome, of course, there's a lot of people here that are of Italian descent. There's a lot of people that wish to go to Europe and don't necessarily want to go via the UK. So I think that will fill up pretty easily. Once again, they'll be using the Boeing 787 Dreamliners to service that link between Australia and continental Europe. And it is At this stage, the only non-stop link. Once you get to Rome, there'll be connecting flights available to 16 European destinations and also a further 15 across Italy. It is said that for a economy class seat, fares will start from $1,620 return. Now, I remember the first time I went to London, which was back in the 70s, and it was over $2,000 in 1975 dollars so really in real terms the price has come down quite a lot Qantas chief executive Alan Joyce said Italy was the airline's largest market in continental Europe for people visiting family and friends from Australia so there you go I know friends of mine who have family over there are already planning their trips and it just is another sign that WA will be opening up to the world. I think you'll find that a lot of the other airlines that have stopped flying to Australia will begin their services again. And I understand that the government has been in negotiations for direct flights between places that we don't have them at the moment, South Korea, Vietnam and other Asian destinations. So it looks like things may be getting back slightly to normal in the near future. Also talking about Qantas, domestically they have signed an in-principle agreement for orders and purchase rights for up to 134 Airbus aircraft. These include the A320neos and the A220s. They will be purchased over 10 years from 2024. It's interesting that they are going for Airbus now because they have traditionally been a purchaser of Boeing aircraft. But as you know, Boeing have had a few problems. They've had problems with their 737 Maxes. They've had problems with their 777s. They've had problems with their 787 Dreamliners as well. Whereas Airbus have not had any of these problems. So there we go. Airbuses could be the preferred aircraft for the long-term renewal of its domestic narrow-body fleet. 
And apparently, Qantas says it is the largest aircraft order in Australian aviation history. So there we go. What else have I been in? Oh, yes, recently I went to Roto to visit the Discovery Park over there. This is amazing. It's nestled behind the dunes of the iconic Pinky Beach. It's a very relaxed and breathtaking coastal location. It's just beautiful. Discovery Rotnest Island. It's really a holiday accommodation with a difference. It's the first low-impact glamping experience on Roto. Yes, you do sleep under the stars, but you sleep in luxury eco-tents. It's just amazing. They look very, very comfortable. They are also very popular. And I was speaking to the architect as I was looking at the park. It is so eco-friendly there. You walk along boardwalks so that you don't affect the sand dunes. Pinky's Beach Club is just gorgeous. There's resort pools there. Access to a couple of beaches, not only Pinky's Beach, but also the Basin. It's just wonderful. And the beach itself and the water there is just so inviting. So uh, Rotnest Island is coming alive. It's really the first sophisticated development that I've seen on Rotto for quite some time. And that reminds me, part of our show today, we are staying in Western Australia for the whole show. First of all, we're going to spend a lot of time out on the water. I'm going to be talking to Miriam Fieri from Sea West Cruises. They have the best cruises down in Dunsborough, Mandurah, over in Rotto, and also up in Broome. And these are cruises, Deagle Station cruises, where you go on board and you have a wonderful cruise and also have a wonderful meal and wines to accompany the food. I'll also be speaking to Luke Crispin and Paul Mulholland, who own Rotnest Fast Ferries. It's really the story of how they brought this ferry across from Tasmania to Perth. They run the ferry service from Hillary's to Rotto, so that's a very interesting conversation. And this week in WA, we celebrated the centenary of the first commercial flight in WA. So I speak to Ron Brown, who is an aviation historian who's based in Geraldton, because that is where the first commercial flight in WA occurred 100 years ago this week, as it took a mail service from Geraldton right up to Derby. Interesting conversation, and all that is coming up next in Tell Me Where to Go. Well, here on Tell Me Where to Go, I am delighted to speak with Miriamthi Reddy. Now, she is the Managing Director of Sea West Cruises, which is based here in Western Australia. I've been alerted to them because they have been running Mandurah Cruises for quite some time. And the Mandurah Cruises are fabulous, particularly their Christmas light cruises, which highlight the Christmas lights in Mandurah from the canals. I'm here to talk about their brand new cruise, which is called the Southwest Cruises, and it's based down around Geograph Bay, around Dunsborough, etc. And this is fantastic. It's called the Taste of the Bays Cruise. Miri, thank you for joining me. The Taste of the Bays Cruise, look, I'm salivating just thinking about that. Can you explain it to me? Describe what happens on the Taste of the Bays Cruise, please. 
thank you for giving me the opportunity to do that. It's really a continuation of what we do in Broom and Rot Nest. And we are sort of really passionate about our, our oceans and the produce of the areas where we operate. And it's no different in the Southwest. But what is amazing about the Southwest is the depth of just amazing produce that you can get both seafood and land-based. So the purpose of the cruise is really to showcase the amazing produce of the Southwest, particularly the ocean produce, but to do it in a beautiful setting. So to do it on a, a lovely, relaxed boat with a great crew in beautiful bays along the north of the Cape Naturalist coastline and to sort of hopefully give people a lovely, relaxed dinner party experience as if they were coming to my house, but with probably better food because I have professional <laughs> chefs. <laughs> So, yeah, the aim is to sort of give a dinner party on a boat. Every course has been carefully thought through to really bring the best of the Southwest produce, of which there's just so many amazing producers in the Southwest. It's been a joy to, to put that together. Well, I have been looking at your menus and have been salivating, and you really do provide the very, very best. And, of course, I guess also it must be seasonal as well. The, the menu must change at times depending on uh, what is available, does it? That's correct. For example, blue swimmer crab is one of the things that's on the menu as part of the pate. You can only start fishing for a crab this month. You know, it's primarily fished in the Mandurah estuary and then along the coast from there southwards. But luckily we're in the season for that. So that's good. Also, you'll see that we talk about fish of the day because we're providing line fish like jewfish or nanagai. You've got to be allow yourself a bit of flexibility about what you're serving because it's a line caught fish. You just don't know what the fishermen are going to come back with. So no. there is that element of allowing for seasonality in the menu. But luckily for us, we're operating in a period where it's a good period for marin breeding. It's a good period for catching crabs. So luckily, we've got quite a short season from January to April and we're able to capture that produce during this time. Now I was going to ask you about Marin because one thing about the southwest is it has probably the finest fresh water crustaceans in the world and Marin is my very very favourite. It's not just salt water fish that you use in is it? You do use a variety of various fishes that are available in that area do you? Yeah we do and I was excited to use Marin because we've never used it in any of our cruises elsewhere. I love its delicate to the sweet flavour and it's such an unusual looking creature you know it's either dark blue or dark purple <laughs> I mean I guess you won't see that because once they see it it's been cooked but yeah and the southwest has amazing marron producers who've spent their entire lives perfecting the art of marron farming so we're lucky to be able to work with one of them Blue Ridge Marron down in Manjimup and yeah we're able to get live marron that we then cook up for the guests each course is, of course, accompanied by a specially selected wine. Now, this is for people who drink wine. So each course is married to a wine that really does suit that course. Yes. So we work really closely with Howard Park wines. So all of the wines that we're providing on this cruise are from Howard Park. And so what Howard Park has done is studied our menu and then made recommendations from their regional range or their heritage range as to what wine pairs best. We're not zealot if people don't want to do that and they want to drink beer throughout the cruise. That's yep. absolutely fine. We're not snobs and we don't mind. Or if you want to drink champagne all the while, that's fine. These are just suggestions and recommendations. But of course, if people do want to follow that, absolutely, you know, we will then provide them with a glass of each that they can sample throughout at each course. How many guests can you accompany on each cruise? Because it is a limited. You've got a certain size boat, which I believe is a 60-foot charter boat. And then, of course, you've got to accompany all these people at a table and any galley that I've been into on any boat is rather small so I guess the chef is limited to what they can do as well. Yeah, we only allow 22 people as a maximum. The boat 
is actually built for 37 people, but we would never try and accommodate that many. A, puts a lot of pressure on the galley, but B, it's just deck space. People want to have sort of, you know, they want to have a spacious eating experience and we don't want people crowded together. So we set the maximum at 22. Does the boat continue travelling or travel between courses so that you get to have a good look at Geograph Bay and down in that region? Or does it sort of say static during mealtime at least? It does both. So we set off, we've got a mooring at Quindalup, which is just three, four kilometres along from centre of Dunsborough. We then go across Geograph Bay, you know, you can see old Dunsborough to your left on the, on the coast. And the first place we anchor is Igmeelup. It's just so beautiful there. You know, the, the woods and the forest come down right to the shore. It's the locals, I think, probably favourite beach. And then we have our first two courses. And we'll have them anchor because our boat isn't actually very noisy. It's got a soundproofing in the engine. Nonetheless, you don't want a diesel engine chugging no. away while you're trying to. So we anchor there. We've got a huge float mat as well. So if the guests wish to get off, I tell you, it's so hard to look at that blue water and not want to jump in it. <laughs> And while we'll be setting off sort of mid to late afternoon, and so it will still be hot. So I would defy people to not want to jump in the water. So we've got float mats so people can sit on the water. We can keep an eye on them. So if you want to have those two courses just sitting on a float mat and we float your food out to you, that's absolutely fine. We then go on to, to Bunker Bay. It's a beautiful uh, spot as well. Yeah. It is. And we sit on the end towards the Cape Naturalist yes. Lighthouse because it's the calmest point. And then we have another two courses. And then we'll come back around and then just anchor off Castle Rock. And that's where you start to see the sunset setting. Yep. And you'll have your last two yep. courses there. And the sunset kind of glows really pink against the rock face. And you never see it from this angle from the land. But the rock face really looks like a castle as you're approaching it from the water. I guess hence the name. And it's just amazing the way the sun kind of glows pink against the rock. And the water goes really flat as a mill pond and kind of pink because you've got the sunset sitting over in the west over the ridge. You just get the pink reflection in the sky. It's just beautiful. And then we head back, you know, as it's kind of dusk yes. at night time. The boat has pretty cool lighting. And so we turn on the, the underwater light. You see all the fish going around. Yeah, it feels very intimate and relaxed. Like you're the only boat on the water because it's dark outside and you've got this beautiful soft lighting in the deck and, and around you on the boat. Now, you have similar cruises off Rotto and also off Broome. Now, both of those are fantastic places to just do a slow cruise whilst you dine. I was looking at the Broome one and I noticed that you are truly local because you include the Pink tartar oyster meat as part of the menu there, don't you? In Broome, we're so lucky. We work with Signet Bay Pearls, who are one of the last remaining commercial pearl fishers. So we're actually able to pull up the Pink tartar Maxima oyster from their pearl lease that they've got about five miles offshore Broome. This is a really amazing pearl lease because there's, you know, obviously very strong tidal flows. They produce really healthy oysters. They produce amazing quality pearls. But the other, the other sort of byproduct is the, the pearl meat, which is just the most amazing flavour. It's like scallops, maybe mm. with a slightly more muscular texture. So we harvest the pearl meat there and then serve it up. And it's such a delicacy and it's so rare. I think it's only a couple of hundred tons, I think, a year produced. So... It's very rare to find it outside of Broome. We're so lucky to be able to serve that because it's such a rare and beautiful delicacy. So, yes, we, we do that, and we're really honoured to be able to work with the Signet Bay company. Broome has some of the most stunning sunsets that I have seen anywhere, so I guess it must be really magical to be out on a boat when the sun starts setting. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's ridiculous. <laughs> you know, occasionally I'll you know, work on the boat myself and it's just even the crew stop and just kind of look at the 
sunset. I guess because where you are, you're closer to the equator, you do get that more, you know, that, that redder sun. It never ceases to amaze me. People who do see it day in, day out are blown away. And then guests, of course, people just spend the entire time just sitting, gazing at the sunset because they've never seen anything like it. I think that's quite special. On Broome, because... I mean, it's always been famous for its pearls, but they have some pretty good meats up there, particularly beef, and they have buffalo and they have crocodile and stuff like that. Do you introduce any of those aspects into the meal when you're up doing the broom cruise? Not as yet. So we have tried to introduce things that are local like kakadu plum in one of our gubbins as it's called locally in our pudding lemon myrtle in the pudding as well but no we haven't gone that far with the because we tend to try and showcase the marine life yes. and therefore the marine side of things we probably wouldn't go so much with the land-based meat crocodile is an option it just sounds yeah. a little bit scary but I don't know what crocodile tastes like. I've never actually had it myself, so I'd be interested to try. Well, it's actually quite beautiful. It's sort of like a cross between chicken and fish, but it's got a very mild fish flavour. There's no fat on it, and it's really, really nice. Probably best done sort of Asian style. Because, yeah, it, Oh, yeah, it goes well with some of those Asian flavours. Because it is a very, despite the reputation for crocodiles as being fearsome, their flesh, it's very, very mild tasting. That sounds interesting. It's certainly something I'll have to then talk to our chefs about for next season. Yeah, they might not want to catch the crocodiles themselves. That's the only problem. <laughs> yeah, you know, chefs are hard to come by. Yeah, you, so. know. <laughs> you don't want to waste one to a crocodile. <laughs> That'd be harsh. Yeah. Think about all the paperwork you have to do. Oh, that's exactly right. It's not worth it. And the, the, the workers' compensation would, would be horrific, wouldn't it, dealing with that? <laughs> <laughs> Let's get back to the base as well, because Mandra, this is where you started in Mandra, and you've got so many of the cruises there. You've got your foodie cruise, you've got your canal cruise, but you've also got barbecue boats down there. Now, I'm looking at a photo of these barbecue boats, and it's the most extraordinary looking thing. When you see those training videos for airline crews when they go going into the sea, they sort of look like a, a more sophisticated survival boat, if you know what I mean. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, they are so kicked, aren't they? I love them. Yeah. They're so unique. They're wonderful. These circular boats, they've got electric motors. Yeah. Uh, they're oh, not so, very powerful. Okay. so they're very, very quiet. They're designed to be driven by recreational skippers. So they're, I think their top speed is maybe six mm. kilometres an hour. They remain really within the, the Mandra Marina and the canals around it. But yeah, we have an onboard barbecue and an umbrella and a circular table. And because of its circular nature, you know, it's the most convivial way of dining. Yes. You can interact with everybody. People love them. And also people are kind of very intrigued by them. People have never seen these crazy oh. orange circular things before. And so we always get people taking a lot of photos. Yeah, people just love potting around on these funny little boats with their umbrellas up and having a lovely barbecue. And it's just the nicest way to just hang out in a very relaxed way with your friends for a couple of hours on the water. And when you say recreational boaties, that means you don't need a licence to drive one of these? Yeah, in fact, I need to correct myself. You don't even need a recreational skipper's ticket. Right. You just need a competent person who can follow our instructions and is, uh, <laughs> is, is over 21. Right. Um, so Kilos we or age? <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, uh, tw- yeah, t- 21 years of age because, you know, it is responsibility yes, managing a boat uh, for us. As long as you've 
kind of got a general sense of direction and steering. <laughs> You're perfectly equipped to drive one of these things after yeah. a short induction cycling. But they look fantastic. And obviously, the thing to do would be to, to do the Broom Cruise, the Rottnest Cruise, and of course the Southwest Cruise, because you will not get the same meal each time, will you? Because it will be geared towards each of those places. So you can have the great experience in three different places in entirely different menus, which I think is a great idea. Yeah, and then to top it all off, you can come and do your barbie on a barbecue boat and have a Christmas night cruise. That's right. Um, <laughs> You've got it all covered. Now, can I make a suggestion? I think there's one des- no. a new destination for you, and I hope you don't mind this, but Esperance. That is the most beautiful coastline that I have seen anywhere in Australia, and I reckon the sort of thing that you're doing would be absolutely magic down there as well. Okay, that's interesting. I've not spent much time down, as you can tell, I'm British. Yeah. And I've travelled a lot around the state, but Esperance is one place I've yet to discover, and I see all these photos on social media. It looks amazing. It is. That's a really good idea. Cape Le Grand National Park, because Esperance is on a big bay. You've got the Research Islands, and I think there's 120 of them or something, and you've got some really good ones, like you've got Woody Island, etc. It is the most beautiful coastline I've ever seen anywhere in Australia. When you start that, I'm on your guest list. Thank you, Mary. <laughs> I think we need to give you a percent of revenues as a commission for giving me the idea. You should get down there and have a look at it. And it's course. It's four hours from Kalgoorlie, which is another magnificent place. But so many people like to do the drive across the Nullarbor. And I always advise them, when you get to Norseman, instead of turning right and going to Cal, turn left and go to Esperance because you will see some of the best scenery ever when you get down there. Wow. Wow, that's high praise indeed. That's, uh, wow, that's, that's wonderful. Intriguing. That's wonderful down there. Yes. Okay. How do we people look at you? You have websites, of course. You've got mandracruises.com.au. You've got southwestcruises.com.au. You've got broomcruises.com.au. I'm understanding there's a pattern going on here, Mary. We're not super creative, are no, we? <laughs> but, but if I'm thinking, where should I look up Broom Cruises? Broomcruises.com.au sort of makes sense to me. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, we kind of, you know, it does what it says in the tin, our, our names, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. That's what you want. You know? I mean, there's no point in having highfalutin names which nobody can find, is there, really? You know, when we think about what we do, you know, you can give your products and your companies these fancy names, but ultimately yeah. the consumer's got a very short space yeah. of time and attention to decide what they're doing, and so they don't want to be parsing through your fancy names trying to figure out where you are no. and, and what you do. So it's, it's better to be direct, we thought. They don't sit there and think, oh, gee, what? Was what's that that name of that broom where they do those wonderful degustation dinners or lunches at Broom? What is it called? You're not gonna Broom Cruises yeah. sort of says it all, doesn't it, really? <laughs> true, true. Following my suggestion it might be Broom Crocodile Cruises for coming. <laughs> I can just see it now. <laughs> Your marketing plan could be eat them for a change. <laughs> I think it's a winner. I think so. I'm obviously going to get a job as your ideas man in probably 120 years' time. I think it's a great idea. <laughs> Best wishes for that too, Marianthea. They're all fabulous just when you look at the websites and I urge people to go and have a look at the websites because you can book online. Oh, yes, of course. Yep, yes, of course, yes. you need to these days, don't you? I've been speaking to Marianthea Reddy from Sea West Cruises. 
who also has Southwest Cruises, Mandurah Cruises, Rottnest Cruises and Broom Cruises. And I can tell you what, every one of those is a fantastic place to cruise in. So you've got it made. We've only got 12,000 kilometres of coastline here in Western Australia, Mirianthi. Keep on going and you'll run out of coastline. It's Sydney next. Is it really? No. <laughs> no, I, I, no, I come from Sydney. That's where I was born and raised. And I can tell you, Sydney Harbour has got some fabulous surprises, particularly if you go into places like Middle Harbour, where you don't get a lot of boaties and it's the most fantastic scenery. And this would work there. You're just planting all these ideas. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Costing you money. <laughs> Exactly. Exactly. My husband's going to have a nightmare. He is. He's going to ring me up and say, don't play that interview, please. (laughs) What have you done? (laughs) Exactly right. Well, Mary Anthony, it's been a delight to speak with you and best wishes with your cruises. They all look to be simply fantastic. What a great way to enjoy West Australian hospitality and the West Australian coastline. Thanks very much for speaking to me on Tell Me Where to Go, Mary Anthony. Lovely to talk to you. Thank you so much. Well, here on Tell Me Where to Go, we are celebrating the centenary of commercial aviation in Western Australia that occurred this week with the first commercial flight happening in 1921 from Geraldton up to Derby. I'm crossing to Geraldton now to speak to Ron Brown, who is an aviation historian. Ron, welcome to Tell Me Where to Go. Good morning, Steve. I'm very happy to be with you. And it is important because I know that you had a long career working in the aviation industry, particularly around Western Australia, and you love aviation history. So tell me about this first commercial flight. Why did it emanate from Geraldton? and not Perth. It seems to me that there'd be a mystery. You would think that it was a mail run. So wouldn't you have more communications or more letters going from Perth to Derby than, say, Geraldton to Derby? It's a very good point, Steve. The reason for in those days was the government owned the railways around Australia, various state governments. And so the protection was for the government-owned railway system as well as the Midland railway system between Perth and Geraldton. So they did not want competition on that area. So the flight was only permitted to operate from Geraldton to Derby and to carry the airmail through the northwest. It wasn't until some time later, probably if my memory serves me well, around about two years later, that having proven a success with the operation that the government finally allowed them to extend the flight from Geraldton to Perth and then have passengers and mail originate in Perth on that flight. Now, I believe the first plane was a Bristol tourer and it was surplus RAF plane, which was picked up after World War I and shipped back to WA. I think there were three of them. And these were imported by Sir Norman Brearley. Now, Sir Norman is better known as one of the founders as Qantas, but he had a role in WA aviation prior to that, didn't he? Norman Brearley was certainly a successful West Australian. He established the airline called West Australian Airways, who operated the flight from Geraldton to Derby, and as such had the first commercial operation in Australia. Now, Qantas was actually registered before 
West Australian Airways operated its service, but it was not actually flying. So the first commercial air service in Australia was in effect then in Western Australia, and Norman Brearley was the man who put that together. He had a vision. He was very, very clear about his safety principles and the professionalism of the operation, and he was not just a pioneer, he was certainly a man who saw where the industry was likely to be going to and he was the first person in Australia to establish an airline and an aviation business using the same principles we use today in terms of professionally running a business. He knew how to pick pilots because one of those first pilots for Western Australian Airways was a gentleman called Charles Kingsford Smith who was probably Australia's most famous pilot. Indeed, and in fact, Sir Charles Kingsford Smith was probably the preeminent pioneering pilot worldwide at the time and was very, very highly regarded. But yes, he was one of the early pilots forming part of Norman Brearley's airline operation and they got that first flight up and running on the 5th of December 1921. But tragedy struck soon after they left Geraldton when as you said quite rightly, three of the Bristol aircraft were operating the first flight because the aircraft, although they were converted World War I aircraft, had an inside cabin for two people, or freight or mail, and the pilot flew in the cockpit outside. And as they flew north of Geraldton, one of the aircraft had an engine failure and needed to land. So it landed near a cattle station homestead. Norman Brearley followed it down to make sure they were okay. He landed his aircraft successfully. But the third aircraft, flown by Bob Fawcett, circled around the site to keep an eye on it. But because of the hot weather conditions, the aircraft stalled. And what that means is that it didn't get enough lift under its wings and spiralled tragically into the ground, killing Bob Fawcett and his engineer. So they were the first operators of a commercial flight and tragically the first fatalities in Australia on a commercial flight. Back in 1921, it wasn't a very simple procedure to fly from Geraldton to Derby, was it? No, How many stops did they have to make on the way? And (laughs) where did they land? Because there were no such thing as airports back in those days. No, and in fact, the federal government, as part of the contract for the new airmail service, was responsible for developing safe landing grounds for them to take this service. And the first service was scheduled to operate Geraldton to Carnarvon, Carnarvon to Onslow, Onslow to Roebourne, Roebourne to Port Hedland, Port Hedland to Broome, and Broome to Derby. And that journey took three days. So there were two overnight stops along the way. And as a result of that first accident, when Bob Fawcett was killed, Norman Brearley contacted the federal government and said, right, okay, we're not flying anymore until you do this properly. We put up with a basic airfield at Geraldton and we were not happy with the rest of them, but we started the service. And as a result of that, the federal government then got in and properly cleared it and they did not conduct the first full service 
until early in 1922. I understand they could carry two passengers as mail, but but if you were a yeah. passenger, you had to have the mail bags between your legs. <laughs> <laughs> Quite possibly. I don't know. I wasn't on that flight. <laughs> oh, well, what a surprise. <laughs> but I am pleased to say, however, if you're ever in Geraldton, you're welcome to come to the WA Museum in Geraldton, and they have a replica of that aircraft hanging from the ceiling in the lobby to the museum. And that aircraft was built to promote, and you talked earlier about Sir Charles Kingsford Smith, they did a television miniseries around about 1987, I think it was, called A Thousand Skies. And it was a story, a miniseries over three parts, I think it was, chronicling the history of Sir Charles Kingsford Smith because he also did the first crossing of the Pacific Ocean and whatever. So that aircraft was flown to Geraldton after the miniseries was over. Unfortunately, it broke down and had to land just prior to reaching Geraldton, so it landed on the highway. (laughs) And from there, it was donated to the museum. It was restored and brought back to working condition. When they opened the new museum in Geraldton, they hung it from the ceiling so everyone could go and have a look at it. So... Very special piece of uh, aviation history. Before you mentioned the tragedy of Bob Fawcett, his plane stalling and crashing, of course, to be a pilot in those days, you had to be fairly brave because it was not the safest of occupations, was it? No, it wasn't. They were flying what we would call these days very primitive aircraft. They obviously did not have the benefit of the mechanical and navigational aids that we have today. And a lot of stuff was done by seat of the pants and general knowledge. And, for example, most of the communities that they were flying to, Onslow, Roban, and even Broome in those days, were very small communities, barely a few hundred people. Because there were no things like mobile phones or all that sort of stuff in those days, what they used to take was they would fly in close proximity to the overland telegraph system and they had a wire that they would throw over the line that would give them access to a radio to be able to call their messages through if they were stranded. And to the best of my knowledge, they only had to use that twice, but it was available to them because there was no other safe way of being able to be in touch. Now, you were talking about the mail flights in those days taking three days to reach Derby. Of course... That was like lightning compared to the previous method, which was to put them on a, a ship and sail them up to Derby, <laughs> wasn't it? So, I mean, this was a, this was a, a fabulous service at the time because of the oh, comparative speed of it. It was amazing. We now sit back and say, okay, look, the shipping was probably five or six days to go to from Fremantle to Derby and probably one day less if you went from Geraldton to Derby. To be able to do it in three days was a remarkable reduction in time frame. And now, although there are no direct flights to Derby at the moment, there were in the past, it was basically just under three hours to Derby from Perth by jet, which is an amazing (laughs) reduction in time frame. So technology has been fantastic. I know the state government is keen to still see service to Derby reinstated. But we have services, of course, to Broome and to Kununurra, either side of Derby, where people can now fly, and and even Kununurra, which is probably the longest in 
fast-date service anywhere in the world. It is 12 um, air miles further to Kununurra than it is from Perth to Sydney. Yes, and at one stage I was the uh, ANSET manager in Kununurra yes. and we put on a direct flight for the first time during my time in Kununurra and that was just over four hours on a direct flight all within one state. Yep. Across Europe, you could have flown all across Europe in four hours. Oh, yeah, I know. You, could, you, would, have been, you would have been on the other side of Istanbul if you took off from Heathrow, wouldn't you? Absolutely, absolutely. Good Ron, stuff. thank you very much for chatting to us on Tell Me Where To Go. It's a fascinating part of West Australian aviation history. We hop on planes now. We don't think anything about it, but these were the pioneers that enabled aviation to become what it is today, which is the safest form of transport and arguably one of the most comfortable forms of transport in the world. Absolutely. And if I may give one final plug once yes. again, Steve, please, if you're anywhere near the Midwest or you're interested in aviation history, please go and have a look at the WA Museum in Geraldton. Cost you nothing to go in other than maybe a donation. But to have a look at that aeroplane and marvel at the way the first flights were operated and you compare that today with a 787 or uh, Airbus A380 and you look at it and think, wow, we've come so far. But also to honour the first flight back in 1921, the city of Greater Geraldton and the regional library have produced a beautiful booklet on commemorating uh, 100 years of commercial aviation through Geraldton and it's available free from the library. It's a wonderful publication and I would recommend if anyone has the opportunity in the not-too-distant future to call into the library in Geraldton and pick up a copy. It will be a worthwhile souvenir of an exciting period of time. Ron Brown, speaking to us from Geraldton, thank you very much for appearing on Tell Me Where to Go. Thank you very much. Great to talk with you, Steve. Rottnest Island is one of the favourite destinations in Perth. It is Perth's most popular holiday isle. And of course, to get to Rotto, you need some sort of vessel. And we've got a new vessel to Rottnest. It's called the Harbour Master. It's part of the Rottnest Fast Ferries fleet. And I've got the two owners and operators of Fast Ferries. I've got Luke Crispin and James Mulholland. Hi guys, how are you going? Good Steve, how are you mate? Good night Steve. Exciting thing is, you've brought this ferry across from Tasmania and if you wanted to buy a ferry in Australia that was further away than Perth, then probably Tasmania is it. I would imagine that bringing this thing across from Tasmania had some challenges for you. For instance... How long did it take you guys to get here from Tasmania? Yes, Steve, it certainly did have its challenges. It took us about four and a half days of travelling, and that's travelling uh, 24 hours a day, right. steaming through the night. We had two stops for our fuel, one in Port Lincoln in South Australia. Yep, that's not a bad little place, yes. That's a beautiful little place, very nice, and it was a good little rest for us. Didn't do any tuna fishing while you are there, did you, by any chance? <laughs> no, unfortunately not. <laughs> we saw a lot of the boats around there, yeah. it's a big fishing industry. Yes, it is. And then, yeah, from Port Lincoln, we were straight across the bottom of the bite and stopped in at Esperance. Esperance is one of my favourite places. 
you've got all those islands in the Oreshic archipelago and stuff. It must have been wonderful to journey through that area. But I guess also from a, a navigation point of view, that would have been fairly tricky as well, given the I think there's something like over 100 islands there or something. You must have been on your toes coming through there, I guess. Yeah, we certainly were. There's a lot to look out for around Esperance, some beautiful islands, lots of reef and rocks. Yes. So we're on our toes. We did have five crew on board. And I think uh, coming into Esperance, we were all upstairs on watch, having a good look around. Your new vessel, it has been in service before. It was in service in Tasmania. The name you've given it, the Harbour Master, is that it's a new name or is it the original name of the vessel? It's the original name. So it was operating in Strawn. That's in, on uh, the west coast of Tasmania, isn't it? Yes, the west coast there. A company called World Heritage Cruises, much like Luke and myself, owner-operators, really know their boat very well. Um, they've named it Harbour Master. They've since built another boat and kept the name going, so they've now operating the Harbour Master too. So, yeah, we thought it was quite a, a fitting name. It's yes. a very imposing boat. I feel it's uh, an imposing and a strong name to represent the investment and the vessel that it is. You don't just go out and buy a fast ferry, do you? There must be a lot of research goes into it and trying to source vessels that are suitable. So how long did it take you to find the Harbour Master? Luke and I's backgrounds are marine. Yeah, you know, we both started as sixteen year old work experience children actually on, on the Rotness Ferry. So fortunately we've each got a you know twenty, twenty five years each behind us. So yeah. we're very confident and knew exactly what we wanted and Luke and I have been looking for this type of large vessel since we acquired our current business eight years ago so it's been very hard to find and we are having to modify the boat this boat in particular for Rottnest Island oversized windows forward-facing windows lots of open space you know that's what the customers want and that's what they expect these days comfortable travel good views good air conditioning good services on board and that's what we've managed to find in Harbourmaster. It's a twin hull catamaran what is the difference and I'm talking about say from a a passenger perspective what is the difference between a twin hull and just a a normal keeled boat because sometimes the seas can be a little bit rough going over Rotto does it make it for a a, a less bumpier ride or anything like that? Definitely so the catamarans are renowned for their weather handling with the catamaran you get the advantage of having the two hulls so it's quite stable it doesn't roll as much as the traditional mono hull vessel the other advantage of the catamaran is the width that you get in the vessel yeah it allows you to have all that open space inside without having to have a very long vessel like you would in a mono hull to create that same space and does that mean that you can put more passengers on board because of that extra space quite safely and also with that larger space you probably can add a little bit more comfortable for your passengers as well can you most definitely so we're governed by the australian maritime authority as to how many passengers we can carry on board the beauty about harbour master is we could cram a lot more people in but it's so spacious that we've reached our maximum numbers that we can carry safely and it allows us to have a lot of open areas so the entrance to the door is all open it's not cluttered by seats there's lots of areas that the passengers can stand up stand around there's storage for prams a lot of wheelchair space on board a lot of people take bikes and that over to Rotto as well is there room for them to store their bikes etc yes look i mean in this modern world people are gathering more and more material things bikes those luggage trolleys everyone's pulling around i've I've got two of them for my children and they're fantastic but obviously as a business we have to develop a boat that can 
cater for all these additional things that people are bringing. So having all this open space, as Luke's saying, it allows us to give the customer a better experience and, and carry yeah. all that they do take with them too, Rottnest. We quite often joke, you know, there must be a kitchen sink in here somewhere. Yeah. You know, we're there to service the customer, give them a good experience and, and make sure we can cart all their luggage, bikes, prams, surfboards, fishing rods. What else do we got? We've had a tinny and an outboard on the boat before, <laughs> all, all sorts of stuff. Make sure we can get it all over there. And for folks coming back from Motto, if they've got their fish that they catch over there, is there a facility for them to keep them cold anywhere on your ferry? Oh, look, we do have a freezer, but if yeah. somebody puts the crayfish in the freezer, I don't know if we'll let them get it back out. <laughs> uh, <laughs> we've got a couple of regular guys, Vic and Peter, they go over quite regularly, do some crayfishing, and on the way back, they'll bring their crayfish on board the boat, yeah. just in a bucket, and they'll start walking around with the crayfish, showing the tourists. It's quite an entertaining thing, watching the kids and some of the tourists try and touch these crayfish, yeah. and wiggling around it, it is quite entertaining, actually. You offer a service from Hillary's Boat Harbour, right? and Hillary's Boat Harbour is north of Perth. What's the normal travel time, uh, given, say, on a good day between Hillary's and Rotto? Hardmaster will complete the trip in around 40 minutes or just under, very comfortably. And 40 minutes, it's not too quick. We leave Hillary's, we run down the coast a little bit to go around some reef and then head directly towards the island. So it goes very, very quickly. We've got onboard TVs, that sort of thing, showing information about the island. So yeah. the time doesn't pass very quickly indeed. And you've got three levels of passenger deck. You can get refreshments on board, etc., can't you? Yes, very much so. Um, if you want to sit in the air-conditioned comfort and stare out the window, you can. If you want to stand on the top deck and feel the wind through your hair and do a Titanic pose, you can do that too. So how many trips a day would you be doing normally, uh, both in peak season and in low season? As a business, we've got a, obviously the fleet of three. Generally, we yeah. only operate two vessels at a time. But through summer, we'll run up to eight services a day. And wintertime, generally, we run around three trips a day. So it's fairly consistent throughout the year. There's always some convenient time for the customers. And you also do whale-watching cruises as well, don't you? Yes, we do in season, generally from the end of August through to sort of late November, early December. We run up to two trips per day, six days a week. We have a marine biologist guide on board that... Yeah runs through all the information for you. It's very informative. And obviously with Harbour Master, the oversized windows, the abundance of open viewing deck, especially my favourite deck right up the top there on the sun deck, which is all open and you just get the best view. So it's really going to change whale watching. And we're quite lucky where we leave from in Hillary's, we're very close to the whale ground. So mm. it's usually quite a quick trip out there, which just gives us so much more time to be viewing the whales. From your experience... Do you see that there are more whales making the journey from Antarctica every year? But a lot of them actually go from Antarctica up to the Kimberley, and to do that, they have to go right past Perth. Yeah, correct. They head south, so coming from north. We usually get to start seeing them probably around July. It becomes consistent towards the end of July. So we start our season generally end of August, and I think, yeah, over definitely over the past eight years that we've been running the whale watching tours ourselves we've definitely noticed the amount of whales picking up they're becoming easier to find lots more pods around which is really exciting great for one for the whale watching but yep. just for the whales themselves to see them growing you must see some pretty stunning whales some pretty big whales out there i guess at times do you oh yes look very much so obviously luke and i've been whale watching you know we started as we're experienced children so yeah we've been seeing these whales for 20 years and it's it's different every day yeah you see new behaviors and you see different whales and different markings on the whales as well so yeah, it's different every day it's still interesting after all these years 
Whale hunting has now been banned in Australia since I think the 1960s from memory. Does that mean that at some stage in the past whales may have had a fear of vessels but that fear must have passed. Do the whales seem concerned by vessels or do they have a little bit of a curiosity about what you're doing? Do they sort of gaze at, at us the same way that we gaze at them? I think it all depends on the pod that you find on the day. Obviously, we can only approach them up to a certain distance and then we stop the vessel. Sometimes they'll come up and swim underneath the boat and just sort of essentially lie there and look at us, yeah. um, whereas other pods don't want to know us and yeah. they'll swim away. So they seem to be a lot more curious. There's definitely not a fear factor, I wouldn't have said whatsoever. No. No, but I mean, we're very lucky that they're a protected species and, and there's the abundance that we can see just off the coast. Legally, you have to stay a certain distance from them. If you're a certain distance and they choose to swim under your vessel, then that's their decision, isn't it? I mean, that just adds to the experience, I guess. Very much so. Look, there's days where whale watching time, we might have been with the whales for a couple of hours and it's, it's sort of time to get back to the jetty. But because the whales are so close, we can't actually move the boat. So some of them get very, very close. We're allowed to drive up to 100 metres towards them. And then as I say, we stop the boat and the majority of the time, the whales come and have a look around and investigate at the boat. I understand that at the moment, a kids travel free offer because we are getting close to the start of the Christmas holidays. How long will that last for? We've been doing the kids travel free in school holidays for, for a number of years okay. now. With the arrival of the vessel and our continued investment in our business and in, within the WA community, because this is obviously open to WA families, we decided to do it year-round. You can do tours and packages. You can do the bus pass and ferry combo. Now, I'll explain to people who have not been to Rotto, there are no private cars on Rotto. They do have buses that take you on tours of the island. You can do Segway tours over there as well. You've also got the historical train and tunnel package. Now, that's interesting because there's a lot of history associated with Rotto. There's a lot of hidden gems over at Rutnest. And as you mentioned, the train and tunnel tour is one of those. And there's probably not a lot of people, I think, really know the history of it and what this tour entails. So it's definitely one worth looking at if you want to head over to the island. So that's a fascinating tour. There's just so much to do on the island at the moment. Yeah. Really a great time and a great place to go. I would recommend people take over snorkel goggles and flippers because there is some just fantastic snorkeling over there. Oh, very much so. Snorkeling is such a popular activity. And the beauty of Rotten with so many bays and beaches in the peak periods when it's busy, you can always find somewhere to go and snorkel where you're in relative peace and quiet. There is so much to see so close to the beach. There's also snorkeling trails. So the Island Authority installed uh, underwater snorkeling trails throughout the years there's quite a few of those as well and they most of them are dedicated areas so they're blocked off to boats so you can uh, snorkel yeah in very very good safety i've been talking to james mulholland and luke crispin who own and operate rotnest fast ferries they run their fleet out of hillary's boat harbour to rotto it's a really good operation and Luke and James, thanks very much for speaking to me and best of luck with Harbour Master. I hope you get heaps and heaps of enjoyment out of it. No, really appreciate your time, Steve. As I say, please come and visit us on board the boat. Nine times out of ten you'll see us driving or working on board. So we look forward to seeing you one day soon. Thank you very much for listening to this edition of Tell Me Where to Go. I do hope that you were fascinated by today's content. I'm Steve Collins. Do have a great week. Goodbye. 
Trap Play.